um, you know, I hope that we're going to have an encouraging time in the Word of God as well as we challenge our hearts uh, this morning. Because what you just saw in the video is what a lot of people are going through today. It's not only what's happening chaotically all throughout the world. Every week we have something else, it seems like, taking place. And uh, the elections are coming up and everybody's uh, in a, in a um, daze about that kind of stuff too. And so, but also in our own personal lives. It's just what it's saying up here. Sometimes you think, God, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying. And the more I pray, the worse the situation gets. And so the guy up here at the end said, wow, I know God is there, but is he there for me? Well, let's answer that question, that both of those questions here this morning. I want to start a series of messages and we're going to be calling it, Be Encouraged, God is for you. Because we need encouragement in this day and age. And I'm taking the, uh, the series from, basically from the verse, Hebrews 11:6. And I've shared with you, that's one of the most challenging verses of my life. If I could just live by this, I could be a, an out-of-this-world dynamic Christian. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is rewarder of those who seek him. As you look at this verse, as you look at this verse, hey, for he who comes to God must believe that he is. Well, you say, I believe that he is. Well, let's talk about that this morning. That's the first part of the verse. And with that, I want us to turn to Romans chapter 1. And in Romans chapter 1, I know that as we look at this, you, some of you are students of the Bible understand the book of Romans is one of the most doctrinally filled books in, in all of, of, of literature, and certainly the Bible. And Paul in the first five, chapter talk, five chapters talks about our salvation experience, and then in chapters 6, 7, and 8, he talks then about our experience with the Lord after we receive Christ. And tucked away here in this passage in Romans chapter 1, what we find is that Paul is talking about the fact that we've all sinned against the Lord. In chapter uh, 2 or chapter 1, the, the person that is, that's a pagan, you know, the Bible says that somebody that's never heard the gospel is certainly accountable for their, for their sins, and the Bible explains that. In chapter 2, the moralists, and chapter 3, even the person that's filled with religion, religion without relationship is accountable as well, and that, therefore we need a Savior, and that's Romans um, chapter four and five. But tucked away in this particular passage is the greatest and maybe the only scriptural evidence of why we should believe in God. This is the proof that God exists. And with that, I want us to look at three things this morning. First of all, God is real. Secondly, we're going to be looking at why we should trust him. We talk about God is great and God is good. Real quickly, I'm going to spend most of the time in the first point. God is real. Well, the question comes up, God, are you there? Well, in chapter 1, verse 16, it says this, for I am not ashamed, Paul says, of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, then also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. I'm going to come back to those verses at the very end of the message. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. What's evident? What is evident to us? Now, we can look 
theologically or apologetically, as it's called, defending the faith, at so many arguments for God. So it's not that we're just out there in, in, in you know, heaven in a sweet by and by just wanting to believe in God. Certainly there are intellectual arguments for the existence of God. You can read about those in, in any theology, systematic theology book. There's a couple of them, teleological argument for God. Basically it means, you know, there's a garden, so there must be a gardener. And then there's the cosmological argument for God. Let me park on that for just a moment. Because basically that's a cause and effect thing. Since there's a watch, there must be a watchmaker. Even Aristotle made the comment, and he made the, and I'll just quote him, if everything in the world has a cause, what caused the world? Well, people, we talk to, to atheists all the time about that. We say, okay, where did the world come from? And they turn around on us and say, okay, where did God come from? All right, great question. Let's try to answer it real quickly. First of all, there's a, the Big Bang Theory. You know, people say, well, the world came from a Big Bang 14 million years ago. Uh, there's even a program, show, TV show named after it, uh, the Big Bang, History Channel or something, you know. And, um, and there's this Big Bang that happened 14 million years ago, and everything just sort of came into existence and began to kind of, the gravitational pull and all the solar systems formed. Okay, where did the Big Bang come from? Who made the Big Bang? And where did the matter come from that caused, that was the substance of the Big Bang? And somebody says, well, it's, it's evolutionary. That's, that's the, evolution is really the answer to the origin of man. But actually, evolution only teaches, even if you believe that, it only teaches the progression or evolution of man, not the origin of man. In fact, uh, let me just read something to you from Carl Sagan, who used to be on um, many of the television programs. In fact, when I was growing up, as a teenager, the guy that they would show in the, the science films was Carl Sagan. And in his book, Cosmos, not too long before he passed away, he wrote these, th these words. And I quote, way back eight billion years ago, there was this planet which was nothing but a mass floating out in space, a hydrogen-rich atmosphere. Through that hydrogen-rich atmosphere, lightning and ultraviolet rays from the sun were breaking down the molecules of the primitive atmosphere. By accident, one molecule broke apart in a certain way that it created a molecule which could reproduce itself and began to reproduce itself, as Sagan says, quite by accident. And it dropped in what was he called the organic soup. In the organic soup, as the chemicals began to mix around, we developed amino acids that merged. About 3,000 amino acid molecules were formed in such a way as to form a molecule of protein, and out of the molecule of protein came a cell in the first building block of life. And out of that cell, over 8 billion years of mutation taking place quite by chance, here we are. Now, I don't mean to make light of that at all, but what I'm saying is, and this is not a message about evolution at all, you can read about that somewhere else, but what he's saying is all of it came by accident. All of it by chance. Now, all I'm saying about that is that if that's true, if that, what he's saying is true, then we're not talking about a scientific fact or even a scientific theory. Chance has to do with math, a mathematical chance. What was the mathematical chance of this happening? And it, it is really, according to Borel's laws of chance, there is no chance that this actually happened, just boom, just kind of happened either with a Big Bang or evolutionary theory, because it becomes a math problem, not a scientific thing that you can prove in a laboratory. But here the thing, here's the thing. Neither one of these teaches the origin of life. So what is it? We've got a choice, and I'm going to go over this very quickly. That's all I'm going to do. 
Matter is eternal. That is, what you can see and what we can touch, matter is eternal. It's always been here. Some kind of matter has just always been here. We don't, we don't know where it came from, and we, you know, it's just always here. Well, you can't explain that because the law, of, uh, second law of thermodynamics says to us that everything is, is de uh, de decreasing. It's going away. It's, uh, and, and evolution says it's going this way. Big Bang sort of says it's kind of going up this way. And so, really, if matter was eternal, as long as it, we've been around the 14 million years, we wouldn't be here anymore because it's continually descending. But if you believe that matter is eternal, then you have to believe matter is eternal. Fine. But the other thing is, somebody says, well, you can't explain where matter came from because you just can't. But where does God come from? Well, here's the difference. If you're saying that matter is eternal and God does not exist and there's only one realm one sphere of reality, and that is what we can see, hear, touch, smell. It's the physical. That's it. And if you believe that, there's no way you can explain the origin of life. It's just, I don't care how long we live, how long we're here on earth, no scientist will ever be able to explain that because you have matter as being eternal. However, if you believe that there is something else out there. You say, well, matter can't be eternal, so therefore, there's got to be something else out there. And that something else out there is something that's unexplainable, something that is mysterious. And even though we can't say where God came from, we certainly have to say we don't understand everything about God. We can maybe understand everything about matter one day, but we'll never be able to understand about God. It's just a different sphere of reality that we have to deal with. And so we look at this, and we look at that cosmological argument of God. But the one I like even better is the moral argument of God. For example, how many of you would say that uh, murder is wrong? Raise your hand. Okay. Does that mean the rest of you think it's okay? No. <laughs> I'm just curious here. You want to vote again? You want a second chance? How many of you believe, and we'll, we'll exclude spouses, okay, but how many of you believe that murder is wrong? Raise your hand. Okay, that's most of you now, and the rest of you. Okay, I'm going to give you a chance to vote. How many of you believe it's okay? Anybody? Okay, good. You know, I'm just glad about that. You know, personally, I felt, felt that better about it. Um, so you made a moral judgment that murder, how many of you would say, you don't have to raise your hand here, but ISIS is wrong? It's evil? Terrorism is wrong? What happened here in Orlando was wrong? We're always saying that. That's wrong, that's wrong, that's evil, that's... What kind of moral judgment can we make when there is no right or wrong? You see, when we say that something is wrong, we're saying that something is morally evil. Well, if you have something that's morally evil, you have to have, on the contrast, something to compare it to, something that is morally good. Now, if you have a judgment of something that is either morally good or morally evil, there must be a moral lawgiver. There must be someone establishing in our hearts what is right and what is wrong. And so we find that argument as well. Viktor Frankl, um, talking about Nazi Germany, said this, the gas chambers of Auschwitz were the ultimate consequence of the theory that man is nothing but a product of heredity and environment, or as the Nazis would say, of blood and soil. I'm absolutely convinced, he says, that the gas chambers of Auschwitz were ultimately prepared not in some ministry or other uh, uh, meeting in Berlin, but rather at the desks and the lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. Really what he's saying here is, and if you can study history a little bit, 
Really, all Adolf Hitler did was take evolution to its, and, and all the philosophy of there not being a right or a wrong, he just took really Nietzsche and all of his atheism to its conclusion. He applied it, and you see what we got. A godless environment. Now, with all that being said, I don't think that we're ever going to come across too many atheists who are suddenly converted from being an atheist to a Christian based on one of the ar these arguments. I'm not saying that they didn't argue it themselves because anybody has an argument. They can find something wrong with every argument. But people like C.S. Lewis and others said that they, they came to know Christ in their first step at least by realizing there was a God. And they asked, well, how, how do you know there's a God? I just knew. A.M. Wilson, same way. I just, I just knew. I just, I just came to the realization there's a God. Well, that bleeds right here into our message. It says in verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident, it's revealed within them. For God made it evident to them. He's saying here is that God places the knowledge of God himself within our heart. Everybody believes that there's a supreme being. If you look down through history at every culture, you will find going into a, a culture that's never heard about God, never seen a Bible, worshiping something. Something within us says there's something greater than ourselves. It's evident God has placed the knowledge within us. I love what the little boy asked his daddy. He said, Daddy, does God know that we don't believe in him? Because every little child has in his heart the cradling of some sort of supreme being of God being out there somewhere. God has placed the knowledge in our heart. Not only that, but he says he's done something else. In verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through, through what has been made so that we are without excuse. He's saying, not only have I placed the knowledge in your heart, but one of the ways I keep placing that knowledge in your heart is that you look at nature and you can understand me. Wow, you look at nature and you say, wow, how did this tree grow? You know, it's just a little bitty tree. We had little trees about this big around in our yard 17 years ago when, we planted, when they were planted for us. We thought we got kind of ripped off with the trees, but now they're this big around. We look at the trees. We look at the ocean. We look at even the violence of this world and and what could happen? I remember it being a student at Coal Falls College and seeing this wall of water all around us in, in the middle of the night and, and 40 acre lake just bursting and just and the aftermath just lifting up houses and all you could see were foundations, concrete foundations. And it was like no houses had ever been there. No trees had ever been around there before. Just power. Power like I've never seen before. You can look at the attributes you can see nature and say you know there must be a god somewhere there's people all over the ethiopian eunuch in acts chapter 8 was an example here he was just kind of worshiping god in his own way reading the book of isaiah and philip left where he was and went out into the middle of the wilderness just to meet this one guy why well he was he was a, he was an ethiopian so he wasn't privy to the gospel he was a converted jew so he was he was seeking the Lord. And so as he was seeking the Lord and asking the question, there's got to be something else. 
I'm reading Isaiah chapter 53 where this one dies on a cross. What's this all about? And Philip explained to him the gospel. People looking and saying there must be something else. Now what happens? What is God upset about in verse 18? He says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, every sin, and all unrighteousness, but men who, listen, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This word suppress means to hide it. It means to repress due to not approving of it. And so what makes God angry in this passage? It says that he has revealed himself through nature, but also the knowledge within our own heart, and we just reject it. Why do we reject it? Because we don't approve of it. Why don't we approve of it? Because it begins to get into our lifestyle. It begins to threaten the way that we want to live. One atheist by the name of Thomas Nagel of NYU University said in the, in the book, The Last Word, he says, as an atheist, I'm, I experience the fear of religion. I want atheism to be true. I hope there is no God. I don't want to live in that type of world, to lose control of my life. Well, if I believe in God, wow, then I'm going to have to do some more research and say, which God? I'm going to have to do some more research and understand the gospel. I'm going to see the power of God in that gospel. I'm going to see Jesus dying on the cross, resurrected on the third day, see the evidences of that, which is overwhelming. And then if I give my heart and life to Jesus Christ, I take the throne, myself off the throne of my life, I give control over to Christ. Who wants to do that? That's what it's talking about. And therefore, the further and further, what, what happens to our life when, when that happens? Notice, it says they didn't glorify him or give him thanks. Verse 21, but they became futile in their speculations. Impaired thinking. That's what it means. Futile, impaired thinking. I can't think straight anymore. You don't know that because why? You're speculating. I bet you this. I bet you the big get bang. I bet you this. I bet, this has happened. This has happened. We speculate all the time. And you know as Christians we do. Even when we feel like God's far away, I bet you he doesn't love me anymore. You know, I, I bet you his hand's off my life in some way. You know, I bet you he's doing something in my life I don't like. And we think, where's God? Where's God? Where's God in all this? And here we find it's futile. And then finally, there's an absence of God here with a non-believer. Their foolish heart was dark and professing to be wise, they became fools. We, we don't want the knowledge of God and the men who love the darkness rather than the light. So where does this leave us? You say, well, God exists because he places the knowledge of God in our heart. There's the answer. How do we know there's a God? Because God says there was, and he places the knowledge in our heart. But you say, yeah, but where is God for me? How does this apply? Is he there really for me? Verse 16 and 17 that we'll come back to in just a minute talks about the power of God in our life. I can remember a time in, in college shared with you before I felt like God was there he wasn't he was there and he wasn't he revealed himself he hid himself he he was talkative he was silent I thought, well this must be me something about my life's not right with God here I'm preaching to everybody else and I can't I can't get anything from God I just don't feel like unless it's the sermon I get nothing you ever had time like that in your life Every time you get down on your knees to pray, you just, your mind wanders and you think, I don't know where God is. You don't feel in touch anymore. There's a pattern in the Bible that is revealed to us. 
goes all the way back to Genesis. Let me just take a few examples. I can go all day with this, by the way, and you don't want me to. Do I have an amen on that? <laughs> all right, I thought I'd get some agreement there. Joseph, in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, he got sold into slavery by his brothers. Sold into slavery, first at the bottom of the well, then sold into slavery, and then put in prison, and he had to wonder, where's God? Now, it doesn't say in the Bible that he said that, but boy, if he, he's human. He had to wonder, where is God? Well, then, at the age of 30, 13 years after all this happened, he was placed as the second leading ruler in all of Egypt and really saved the world. Well, there's God. There he is. What about Moses? Here, there was a Pharaoh that rose up in Egypt that didn't know Joseph, and he said, look, you know, the Hebrews are kind of multiplying. They're scaring me to death, so just kill all the male children. Where's God? Man, there's Moses. He's going to be killed. Mother's mother had this idea. She put him on that uh, gentle Nile River. At least it looks that way in the movies, you know, with all the crocs. <laughs> you know, gee, you know, it's so gentle. Even the crocs love it. And so you put it on. The, and then Pharaoh's daughter comes along and, and grabs up the baby and raises him as his own. Well, there's God. And, and what about the Egyptians serving in slavery for all those years? Where is God? Where is God in all this? Moses comes up, thought he was going to be the deliverer, and slew an Egyptian. Well, there's God. No, he was kicked out. He, he ran for his life 40 years on the backside of the desert. I don't know where that is, but that sounds bad to me. 40 years on the backside of the desert, the Bible says, and he had to be wondering, where's God? In fact, after 40 years, he didn't even feel like he was the guy anymore. He was, he was depleted. He had given up in his life. Where's God? Well, the, the bush started burning without burning up. Oh, there's God. There he is. The Israelites were backed up to the Red Sea. You remember that story? If you haven't read the book, you've seen the movie. And there he was. The Israelites were saying, we ought to go back to Egypt. Look what you've done, Moses. You've led us to a dead end. You ever felt like God led you to a dead end? And the sea begins to open up because people were wondering, where's God? Where's God? Where's God? Where's God? The sea opens up. Oh, there's God. There he is. During the, in the Bible times, 400 years of silence of God between Malachi and Matthew, two Old and New Testaments. They'd be wondering, where's God? John the Baptist shows up and he says, prepare the way of the Lord. He's coming. There's God. When Jesus died on the cross, the disciples had to be wondering, where's God? Where's God? Where's God? They ran for their life, and when they saw the resurrected Lord, they had to say, there's God. There he is. What about in your life? You say, wow, been praying and praying and praying. Where's God? And God answers the prayer, oh, there's God. You know, the problem that I think we have, comparing us to some third world countries, when I've been there, when God shows up, they relish in it. They park right there. They don't move on until they have to. They just relish and thank God and give him glory for rescuing them. We here in America, including myself, they, oh, there's God. Wow, great God, wonderful God. Now what's next, God? Don't we? But when we get into one of those times where we say, where's God, where's God, where's God, we sort of park there. And think, wow, God's never really going to show up. 
But God is there for you. But this is how God works in life. Why? Because he's testing our faith. Why? Because he's building our faith. Why? Because he doesn't want us to get egotistical and prideful and put ourselves back up on the throne or really one of the gifts of God back on the throne. Always keeping us in check because he knows our human nature. This is how God works. Where's God? There's God. And so you say, well, that's pretty inconsistent. Why should I really trust him? Well, I'll give you two good reasons. God is great. And God is good. I know. Some of you are thanking him for your food already for lunch. <laughs> give me a couple of minutes. Just give me a couple more minutes. God is great. Look at verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. Verse 20 says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes. Now, this, an attribute is a characteristic of God. It's the fact that he's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's been everywhere at one time. He's everywhere at, one, at once. He's all-merciful, um, he, you know, he's faithful and true. All these attributes, he says, you can look at nature and see them. Wow, you can see the power of God in, a, in an ocean or a growing tree. You can see the fact that he's everywhere at one time in, in nature. When things happen over here on one side of the world, and something else over here, goods happen on the other side of the world. He's everywhere. You can see the the invisible, the things that God is invisible, you can see what he's doing in the world just through nature, his, the attributes that he has. Now, here's the problem. He says we've exchanged it. Look with me in, um, in verse 20. He says, for since the creation of the world, invisible attribute, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen. We are without excuse. Then all the way down to verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged. Why were they foolish? They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds, of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. He said, we've exchanged it. You see, the problem is we can say, I don't want to believe in God because I want my freedom. You'll never have it. Never have the freedom. The truth shall set you free, the Bible says. Because all of us have a master. And we've said so many times, the only master that you can serve that will not come back to bite you and get you is Jesus himself. Every other God you place upon the throne, whether it's money, whether it's family, whatever it is, your health, your, you know, your, your physical fitness, your car. In fact, look in this. You, you look at this right here. It says the image of form of corruptible man. A lot of people worship their cars. Less today, maybe in the past, but certainly they do. What, what about this? These are some names of cars. Ford, Chrysler, Edsel, all named after men. And then what about birds? Hawk, Eagle, Falcon. My dad owned a Ford Falcon at one time. And I can testify the reason why they don't make those anymore. <laughs> They're all birds. Animals, cougar, mustang, jaguar. And what about reptiles, cobra, viper? Isn't that amazing? I wonder if God just put those four things in there just because he knew the future and he says, hmm, this will be funny if I put that in there. That'll be funny. But we exchange the wonderful God for something else upon the throne, an idol, anything, there's anything in our life that replaces God. So God is great. Now, there's two things that I want to ask someone before I can really trust them. Two things. One, can he? Secondly, will he? 
Can he? Is he capable of doing it? And will he? Does he care enough to do it? Is he trustworthy enough to do it? Does he love enough to do it? Well, not only is God great, but God is also good. He's good to us. He's a, he's a good God. Listen to what uh, here in Romans, so I'll come back to 17 and 18 in just a moment. But it says here, the righteous man shall live by faith. At the end of that book, seven, uh, verse 17, Tim Keller has often said that there's only one attribute you cannot find in nature. Now, I don't know whether it's only one, but this is true, what he's about to say. One attribute that you cannot find in nature is love. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people say, I cannot believe the Bible. I don't want the, the God of the Bible. Why? I don't want a judgmental God. Okay? That's how you feel. But what's, what's my defense of that? How do you know that God's loving at all? How do you know that? You say, well, I just know it because the religions of the world teach it. No, the, no religion in the world teaches that but Christianity. Not one. You, you can't talk Islam. You talk to an Islamic person about us being the bride of Christ. That's blasphemous. Buddhists, you have no relationship with God as a Buddhist. You don't find the love of God taught anywhere any time except one place, the Bible. This is the origination of the entire teaching of the love of God. So if you say, I don't want the God of the Bible, you're saying, I don't want the God of love. I just don't want that. With the rest of the religions of the world talking about other things, I just don't want. No, the love of God is here, and he proves that. Over here in, in John, I just want to read you a quick verse. It says, um, for the law has given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God in any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus has explained the Father, explained God. How did he explain him? How he lived? But no explanation is greater and more specific than what he did on the cross. It says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel, the foundation to the gospel is the cross of Jesus Christ. And on the cross, we find the holiness of God expressed like no other time in history or in the Bible. When Jesus hung on the cross and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When the disciples were there, what few were left, a couple of them were there, and Mary, his, his mom, and some, some of the other ladies, they had to be saying, where is God? God, come on, rescue Jesus. Where is God? He was on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because at that point, he took on your sins and mine. The Bible says God, the Father, cannot stand to look upon sin. And so at that point, he abandoned his son because of his holiness for you. Nowhere in the Bible do we see the holiness of God expressed more than in the gospel. Then we find nowhere else in the Bible is the love of God expressed in that gospel at the cross. Because it was Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. Him loving enough, love us enough, to die on the cross for a reason. He didn't just die to prove something. He died to prove his love that he could take the place 
of our sin. There's no other love ever expressed, greater love in all the Bible, all of literature, than what we find at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so as we're looking, we're saying, well, but how does that apply to me as a believer? Listen to Romans 8 as Paul kind of concludes what he's talking about. He says, what shall we say then? Good question. If God is for us, who can be against us? He goes on to say, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Everything that we need, everything that God is in God's will for our life. He says, I will freely give it to you. And he goes on to say, who, who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who's interceding or praying for us. And he goes on to say, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who can separate you from his love? Who can do that? He says, he goes on to say, well, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. No, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come, powers, will ever separate us from the love of God. The only thing that can separate us from experiencing the love of God is our sin. God took care of that on the cross. And since he took care of that, he says, I'll give you everything else you need. Everything else. Because when we hang in, when we, we believe that God is, and that he is rewarder of those who seek him, dear friend, at that point we'll know there'll come a time in that area of your life where you're going to say, ah, there's God. There's God. Are you willing to be patient with that? When you have that aha moment, ah, there's God in my life. Look back with me as I conclude in just these two verses. It says, the righteous man shall live by faith. Why should he live by, why should you live by faith? Why should you trust God? He says this, because it's revealed from faith to faith. It's talking about from one person's faith to the next person's faith. He's about to explain that in the following verses. That what he's saying is, I put that faith in your heart. To, for you to do something with it, for you to respond somehow, one way or the other, I've placed it in your heart. Now, how did I place that in your heart? Because I've given you the power of God of salvation. How? Through the gospel. And the gospel is so great, so pure, so wonderful. Paul says, I'm never ashamed of it. Why are you not ashamed of it, Paul? Because it works every single time. I can preach it anywhere in the world. It never fails. So you and I, who have received, who have received that gospel message, we know, we know because of the pattern of God in our life, there's going to be times we think, oh, God, where are you? Where are you now? God, I wish you'd show up now. But there's going to be multitudes of times where we're going to be able to say, ah, there's God. There he is. With their heads bowed and eyes closed. This morning, you're sitting here today and um, maybe you're going through a difficult time in your life. And you're thinking, wow, God's created me. He's placed faith in my heart. He's revealed himself to me. He died for me. I can trust him. I'm going to put my trust in him as a believer. I'm going through this difficult time in my life, but 
I'm trusting God that if I diligently seek him and just keep on, that just keep on the path, keep on walking with the Lord. When I do that, there's going to be a there's God moment. Would you say to God right now, God, I want to endure that. I want to go through that. I want to, I want to get to the end. I want to have that there's God moment. Would you trust him with that area of your life? And then if you've never received Christ into your heart, no one else moving around, all right? You've never received Christ into your heart. I want to give you that opportunity to do that this morning. Simply by praying a prayer. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, it's so simple. Even a child can understand it. And God wants to make it that way for all of us. Not complicated, just real and simple. He died for you. He rose for you. Now, you invite him into your heart. You can do that by praying this prayer out loud, or rather silently with me as I pray aloud. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and dying for my sins. I open up the door of my heart. I ask you to come in. I turn from my sins. I place my life in your hands. I worship you in Jesus' name. Now with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you prayed that prayer inviting Christ into your life, I want to pray for you, and I, 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 whether I can see or not, it's not important. God knows who you are. So why don't you lift up your hand, all right? You've prayed that prayer, inviting Christ into your heart. All right, thank you. Anyone else? Others, maybe up in the balcony. Thank you. Anyone else? We're going to have an invitation right now, okay? And we're going to ask you, as I pray for you, if you pray to receive Christ, or you're not sure about your salvation, I want you to come forward and take one of these gentlemen by the hand who's right up here, one of our associate pastors, and just say, uh, I prayed that prayer with the pastor. I want to know more about this Christian life. Others here, you're dealing with things in your life. Why don't you just lay them all on the altar to God? Why don't you just come and pray about it? Say, God, I want to come to the altar. I want to lay it on the altar. I want to leave it there for you. You to take care of where one day I'm going to, I'm going to come to a time, and I'm going to trust you. There's going to be a there's God moment. The altar is open. You come. You want to join the church. Hey, we'd love to have you. Love to have you. You can start that by coming forward and talking to one of these gentlemen up here in the front. You come right now. We're going to sing as we stand together. You've heard the invitation. Right now, you respond as I pray for you.